It's, uh, this is kind of just a little bit more at ease here. First gathering, it's just like packed in here, packed. And now, you know, this is, this is, this is nice. Yeah. Everyone doing well? Okay. We're going to start a new series, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to dive into this book. Um, I'm excited about this. One, because it's a gospel. And I know the whole Bible is about Jesus, but the Gospels are so uniquely about him. And maybe I'm right or wrong here, but my experience in the church, I have seen how the church has overemphasized Paul, the Apostle Paul in his writings, and I think sometimes we have underemphasized the Gospels. Anybody else sometimes wonder that? Okay, it's just me. Um, but I think, you know, we've looked at Jesus' birth. We look at his death and resurrection, which we should. I mean, those things get a lot of attention. But sometimes I think there's a hole in the center. Because Jesus also lived a life. And he came with a message. And I'm not sure we've listened to him. So I want Crossroads to be a church that knows Jesus not just from Paul's epistles, but from the Gospels. That we know who Jesus is, that we know what Jesus came to do, and we know why it matters. So much so that it causes us to dance and sing and feel like we're part of the greatest thing going on in the world. The way we're going to approach Matthew is this way over the next months. Um, we're going to study this thing at a fast pace. So we're going to cover large chunks, which means I'm going to leave a lot of meat on the bone. Neil, Matt, they're going to, we're not going to be able to cover everything, but we like this because really we're going to teach so that it can assist you as you study God's word for yourself. Okay? So, all right, this morning we're going to look at the first two chapters of Matthew it's going to be a little bit Christmas time here in September at Crossroads. Uh, the primary text that I'm going to look at is Matthew 1, the first 17 verses. Are we ready for this? I'll say that again. Are we ready? Yes. Okay, because I'm going to tell you right now, if you have like lingering football thoughts going on from yesterday, or you didn't get enough sleep, we're going deep this morning, Okay. And uh, I'm just, that's just a little warning. You sit for my words, we stand for God's word. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Shalman. Shalman, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father, not just of David, King David. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. 
Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the, Abijah, the father of Asa. You guys liking this? <laughs> I'm going to keep going. Um, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Oh, hopefully we finally know one. Now we're back in the king series, right? Because these are all kings. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And there's another one, hopefully, we know. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And we just read those like they're words on a page. But to God's people, those are just like, that's a devastating moment in their history. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shethiel, Shethiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Atzor, Atzor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Elazar, Elazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called Mashiach, Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is God's word. You can be seated. Oh, come on. Who wants to preach this? Who's thinking what a downer? Seriously? The New Testament starts like this? Now, we just read one of the most amazing Bible passages in the book. For starters, the Gospels are not once upon a time, they're not fairy tales. They take place in real time, in real space, with real people. And in terms of Jesus, who he is, and what he came to do, this text is as good as it gets. If you're wondering how, that's part of my job this morning to show you that. Okay, let's start with this word in verse 1, the word genealogy. Why a genealogy? Well, culturally speaking, a genealogy, I think, means little to us. I mean, how many of you right now can, well, hopefully you can mention the name of your, of your grandparents. But can you mention the names of your great-grandparents? Or your great-great-grandparents? See, in that world, everybody knew their genealogy because... Your genealogy determined your worth and status. And maybe the closest equivalent that we might have in our world would be a resume. Because in that world, a genealogy was one's pedigree. It told the world who you were, your place, your standing. Because in that world, your worth and your status came from your father and your father's father. And your father's 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 father. 
And you get the picture. Now, biblically speaking, this word carries a ton of theological meaning. Does anyone know what the word genealogy is in the original language? Remember, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek. What? That's Greek. Thank you. First, I'll start with the Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's the word toledot. In fact, the whole book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it's structured around this word toledot. Because in Greek, this word as I love that dude, thank you, is what? Genesis. Genesis is a Greek word. So the way Matthew 1 starts then is, this is the Toledot, or the Genesis, of Jesus, the Messiah. In other words, what Matthew is letting us know, that something on par with Genesis is now taking place in Jesus. And right away, we should be like, Because, see, this is why some of you are wondering, why do do we spend so much time in the book of Genesis? I mean, this church has studied Genesis a lot. It's because if we don't know the first Genesis, then how are we going to understand fully the new Genesis in Jesus? Let's just consider for a moment right now what happens in the first Genesis. What is the first book of the Bible about? What happens in Genesis 1 and 2? God creates. Now listen. The way it's worded is God is not creating ex nihilo the way Western philosophers think. When God creates, there already exists this formless void. Or in Hebrew, it's the tohu they bohu. It's this massive churning of disorder, emptiness, and chaos. But when God creates, God's rule breaks into that disorder and into that chaos. And God creates by unleashing the kingdom of heaven into the tohu ve bohu. And it brings about shalom. In fact, the kingdom of heaven, biblically speaking, has a name, Shalom. Because whenever God's rule, whenever the kingdom of heaven breaks into chaos, the result is Shalom. I don't know what your world is like. I don't know what your existence is like. But I would like to think that every person right now knows, is just like, yeah, I know exactly what that's like. I know exactly what the kingdom of heaven is like. I know exactly what it's like for, the, for God's rule to break into a person's chaos and bring about shalom. Because shalom, which we translate peace, is, it, it's more than just the absence of conflict. Shalom is much richer and fuller than that. Shalom is wholeness. Shalom is complete completeness. Shalom is is everything the way God intended for it to be. It's everything in perfect 
harmony. And see, that's what we see at creation. This beautiful harmony permeates the universe. But then what happens? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, instead of listening to God, they listen to the snake, to the enemy, and sin, sin enters the world. And like cancer, sin infects God's harmonious creation, and the shalom is ruined, and the world returns again to the tohu vebohu. Chaos replaces the wholeness. God's good creation becomes broken in every way. But see, into that brokenness and into that wreckage, God provides a glimmer of hope. And maybe one of the most important verses in the Bible is Genesis 3 verse 15, where God gathers the guilty parties. He gathers Adam and Eve. He gathers uh, Satan. And he lets them know a couple of things. He lets them know that two kingdoms are represented here. And that a war is going to ensue between these two kingdoms. And it's like he looks at Eve and, and, and Adam, and says, from your offspring will come a people who will be bruised by the serpent's offspring. He's going to bruise you. He's going to hurt you. But then he looks at Adam and Eve, and he says, but from your offspring will come a rescuer. And I almost envision at that moment God just taking the snake by the throat and saying, when that rescuer comes, he will crush you crush. And see, then as you keep reading the book of Genesis, ten times this word toledot shows up. It's translated either the generations of, or the account of, or the story of. And it's used in Genesis in in a certain way to draw our attention to the family in which God is going to send his rescuer. In fact, throughout Genesis, God places a toledot every time after something dark and disastrous occurs. For instance, after Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, and then after Cain kills Abel, there's the Toledot of Seth. Then after the wickedness and evil fill the earth in Genesis 6, there's the Toledot of Noah. Then after the flood, there's the Toledot of Shem. Then after the Tower of Babel, there's the Toledot of Abraham. It's God's way of saying in all this darkness and gloom, don't give up hope because my promised rescuer will come. And here's the family that it's going to come. That's why he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to sign this thing in blood. My rescuer, who's going to make everything right, is going to come from you and your family. And our New Testament starts off with these words. And this is the Toledot, the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham. Let me show you something else that I think is kind of cool. Do you know how the, how does our Old Testament end? Does anybody know? Does anyone know know what book of the Bible? Malachi. How does the Hebrew, they don't call it the Old Testament, they call it the Tanakh or the Torah. How does the Hebrew Torah, which is our Old Testament, end? What book? 
Second Chronicles. And that would have been, uh, of course, the, 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 the Bible that Jesus read and his contemporaries read. So then when you go to the end of Tanakh or Torah or God's word as they had it in that day, it is Second Chronicles 36, verse 23, which puts us back in the King series, which we did some while ago. But it says, this is what King... This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. This is right after the exile. And it's like everything is, is, is gloom and doom again. God's people have been once again kind of kicked out of the garden and exiled. But here's the glimmer of hope. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, who has given me all authority in earth, now says to you, go. To you, people of God, go. Go back to your land and build the temple. Now, what does that sound like? Just like the end of Matthew, Matthew's gospel. The Lord's king, the Lord's Messiah, has his 12 before him, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go. Not back to the land to build the temple, because the temple is already here. And now it's in you. And now go. Take temple to the world. And the reason I showed you this is because what Matthew is doing here is not only is his gospel beginning the same as Torah does in Genesis, but it ends the same way. In other words, what he's telling us, he's, he's telling us that Jesus is not only the beginning, he's not only the Genesis, but he's also the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega of God's word, and he's everything in between. You're kind of like, so? I'll just say, in the fullness of time. God didn't just do this whole thing in a vacuum, but he has prepared everything perfectly, especially through his word. In Torah, Tanakh, Old Testament, it not only points us to Jesus, but it is about Jesus from beginning to end. And I'll just whet your appetite just a little bit right now because this is what we're going to come to see in Matthew's gospel. We're going to see how Jesus is the new Adam. And like Adam, he's going to be tempted. And like Adam, God's going to place a tree of righteousness before him. But this new Adam is going to be a perfectly obedient son. And we're going to see how Jesus is the new Moses. Out of Egypt I called my son. How he's the new Exodus. How he's one greater than the prophets. How he's one greater than Solomon. How he's the greater temple. How he's the greater Passover lamb. And it's going to go on and on and on again. And this is why if we don't know the book, we're not going to fully understand Jesus. Or as Matthew's presenting him. And I think the most important thing that Matthew is going to show us is how Jesus is new Israel. And I know right now you guys are like, man, can I tune out right now and start thinking about that Michigan football game? Because that means hardly anything to you. But what is Israel in the Bible? Israel 
is God's special people in God's special place under God's unique rule, enjoying God's Shekinah presence and glory, and they're called to priest that rule and presence into all the world. That's Israel. And see, I think so many of us, when we read the Old Testament, we just think, okay, um, that Israel thing didn't work, so therefore now God is going to throw away plan A, and he's going to go with plan B. But God doesn't operate that way because when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And he made a promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, it's going to be through you and your family. It's going to be through Israel that I'm going to save and redeem the whole world. And then hundreds of years later, to to one of Abraham's descendants, to David, he gets more specific. And he says, David, it's going to be through you and through your kingly line that the ultimate king of the universe, the rescuer, is going to come. So don't you for a second think that God is changing his plan. Don't you for a second think that God is replacing Israel with the church. God is going to save and redeem the world through Israel and through Israel's king. Now look at Matthew 2 verse 15. Out of Egypt it says, I called my son. See, and we immediately just think that this is a prophecy about Jesus, but let me just take you really quickly to Hosea, because yes, while it is a prophecy about Jesus, it's first, Hosea 11 is about Israel. And listen to how it reads, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. That's about Israel. And it was I who taught Ephraim, which is another word for Israel. I taught Israel how to walk. I took them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was the one who lifts a little child to its cheek, and I bent down to feed them. And then he ends it with this. How can I give up on you, Israel? How can I hand you over, Ephraim? I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim. Or Israel. Again. And see, when it says in Ho- that out of Egypt I called my son, that son is Israel. Israel throughout the Old Testament is called God's son. So we read the Old Testament and we see that Israel fails. I mean, they fail miserably. They fail to be God's people in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's presence and bringing God's rule and presence to the whole world. In fact, they're more of a prodigal. God doesn't give up on his people. And he doesn't replace his people with another people because this is a covenant. And God's promise to Abraham was, if you can't do it, I will do it for you. So then we read the biblical story and we should ask this question, how's God going to do this? How's he going to save and redeem the world through Israel? And through Israel's king. Answer, Jesus. Because Jesus is new Israel. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He 
does what Israel couldn't do. He does what Israel's kings couldn't do. In fact, let me show you something in this genealogy that blew me away. In the original Greek, Matthew 1, 1 through 17, the passage we read, the number of words divisible by seven. The number of letters divisible by seven. The number of vowels and the number of consonants divisible by seven. The number of words that begin with a vowel divisible by seven. The number of words that begin with a consonant divisible by seven. The number of words that occur more than once divisible by seven. The number of words that occur more than one, in one form divisible by seven. The number of words that occur in only one form divisible by seven. The number of nouns is divisible by seven. Only seven words are nouns. The number of names in the genealogy divisible by seven. The number of male names is divisible by seven. The number... I'm only halfway through the list. And you tell me how you could write that and create that. It's so Hebraic. Because what's seven? What does seven signify in the Bible? Completion, wholeness, and namely, God. See, this is, the, this is the Hebraic way. I mean, he, he could just say Jesus is God. But this is the Hebraic way of saying Jesus is God. And see, I want us to see then that Israel's God not only became flesh, not only became a human being, but Israel's God became Israel and he becomes everything Israel was supposed to be. He lived the life Israel was supposed to live. He perfectly was God's person in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's presence, and priesting God's rule and presence in all creation. And he is the king, I tell you. I mean, that's what this genealogy is here to tell us. I mean, this is a royal genealogy. This is the kingly line of David. Jesus, Messiah, the son of David. In fact, look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, thus, again, here's our divisible by sevens showing up in English form. Thus, there were 14 generations in all. From Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, just in terms of the numbers, what is this teaching us? 14 is two sevens. Three fourteens. Six sevens. Jesus is the next seven. What is he? He's the seventh seven. In other words, again, because this word means completion and perfection, this is the Hebraic way of saying Jesus is the complete and perfect descendant of Abraham. He is the complete and perfect king, the king to end all kings. He is God. Now, what else does seven refer to in the Bible? On the seventh day, God rested. So, throughout the, 
the book, the story, even in Jesus' life, the seventh day is Sabbath. The seventh year is what? The Sabbath year. Then the ultimate Sabbath year, which was the seventh, seventh year, which is what? Oh, I love that, that you guys said that. And what's Jubilee? Jubilee is freedom. It's when everything that's gone wrong is being made right. All slaves go free. All debts are canceled. Everyone gets a do-over. Imagine you get a do-over. Everyone gets to go to what's originally theirs. And see what Jubilee is, it's the Bible's picture of redemption. It's when everything is restored to its original state. This is what Jesus came to bring. Rest. Sabbath rest. Shabbat shalom. Jubilee. You see, now I'll put this in the context of Genesis. Because when Israel's king comes, he's going to do a lot more than save a few souls and take them off to heaven. This is new Genesis. When God's king comes, when Messiah comes, he's going to do nothing less than recreate the heavens and the earth to usher in new creation to move into the tohu ve bohu of our world, the chaos, and unleash the kingdom of heaven, bringing about shalom. You see, this is why the Old Testament, why the Torah anticipates Messiah with words like this. The trees of the field, they're going to clap their hands. The mountains are going to sing. And all creation's going to dance. Why? Because of new creation. And see, what the Gospels are here to show us, they're here to show us a lot, but one of the primary things they're here to show us is what the world will look like when God is finally in charge, when God sets his king on his holy hill. The lame will walk, and the blind will see, and the deaf will hear, and the dead will be raised, and the poor will have good news preached to them. It's nothing less than new creation. Are you singing? Are you dancing? Obviously you're not. Are you in here? You guys crack me up. Israel's God became Israel's king. And Israel's king is Lord of the world. And the gospels say, behold, behold your king. Do you see him? Do you see the kind of king he is? Behold him. Behold him here in the first two chapters of Matthew. Because really, the first Christmas is a tale of two kings. It's a tale of Herod, and it's a tale of Jesus. 
That's why Matthew devotes so much attention to Herod. Because he wants to contrast our idea of king with God's idea of king. Because the only thing that Herod and Jesus have in common is they're both called king of the Jews. Herod called himself that. He called himself king of the Jews because he aspired to be Israel's king. He aspired to be the great Messiah. In fact, when I take people to Israel, one of the things that I have to be careful of is that the experience doesn't become more about Herod than about Jesus because everywhere you go in the land, Herod still has his imprint there. He was the greatest king the Middle East had ever seen. In terms of wealth, he was the Bill Gates of his day. Even the Caesars had but just a fraction of Herod's wealth. And see, what Herod did then is he used all that wealth to become the greatest builder that world had ever seen. And he played SimCity every day. All over that land. He took Jerusalem, which was just a rather modest city, and turned it into a world-class city on par with Rome. He built harbors where he had no business building harbors. He built palaces in places where he had no business building palaces. He, he adorned all of Israel with temples, arenas, fortresses, Roman baths. In fact, in Bethlehem, he wanted a palace fortress because he was a student of the text. And he wanted it on a mountain to be like the eye of Mordor. He could see. And the problem was is that there wasn't a mountain in Bethlehem, so what did Herod do? He made a mountain. He did. That's why it was said about Herod, he has the vision to move mountains. And just to get the scope of, of, of how big and grand Herod did things, Caesar's palace in Rome was seven acres. It was decadence. Herod built seven palaces, many of which were 20 acres. He is the epitome of what we think of when we think king. He had it all. He obsessed with power. He was paranoid of everyone. Killed thousands upon thousands of people because of this paranoia. Even sons of his, family members, his favorite wife, put him to death. And it's right here in our Christmas story. And see what Matthew's doing, he's putting these two kings side by side, I think, to show the ridiculous difference between the world's kind of king and God's king. Do you know who Herod is, biblically speaking? I mean, this is, this is, to me, this is amazing. Even though he prides himself on being king of the Jews, Herod, ethnically speaking, is an Edomian. He's an Edomite. In other words, this is Esau's greatest descendant. On the world's stage, at the same time, Jacob's greatest descendant enters. And see, now we're back in Genesis again. Now we're back in the Toledot. Because if you remember in Genesis 25, there's this Bedouin woman, Rebecca, who's, who's pregnant. And she, there's this Hamas going on in her tummy. The pain is so great. She cries out to God, God, what's happening to me? 
And God says, Rebecca, you're giving birth. There are more than just twins inside of you, but there are two nations. There are two kingdoms. There are two toll adults. These two kingdoms, these two toll adults are going to wage war against each other. And then God makes a promise to Rebecca. He, sa- she, he says to her, the older will serve the younger and the younger will rule the older. And so when she gives birth to these twins, she names the older who? Esau. The younger is called Jacob. The nation that comes from Jacob is what? Israel. The nation that comes from the older Esau was Edom. Then you move forward into the story to Numbers 24 And Israel's this upstart country. The Moabites are threatened by them. They take one of their prophets and they say, pronounce a curse on them. The prophet comes, stands before Israel, trying to pronounce a curse. And all I can do is bless him. And in Numbers 24, verse 17, this prophet says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will rise out of Jacob, a scepter from Israel, and he will crush Esau, Edom. God's toll adult is with Jacob, with Israel. And by the time of Jesus, Edom, Esau, became synonymous with Rome. And it became synonymous with Satan and all the spiritual forces of evil. And now, it's the first Christmas. And probably hanging out in one of those decadent palaces is the greatest descendant Esau had ever seen. And in some stinking cave, he was a descendant of Jacob. By all appearances, it looks like Herod is the stronger. It looks like Herod is the mightier. It looks like Herod is the king. It looks like Herod sits on the throne. But Genesis is right. The older will serve the younger. The seed of Eve, the Toledot of Jacob, the son of David wins and will win. And his kingdom is forever and ever and ever. You know, I think you and I live in a world today where we look at it and man, it, it looks like Herod is in charge. It feels like Herod is in charge. But the king of the universe isn't in a palace. Isn't in some upper tier somewhere. The king of the universe is the descendant of Jacob. And I want you to consider this right now because this is the part. It moves me. Not only is Jesus the king, but Matthew is going to show us how this king wins. Because Matthew, at the end of his gospel, is going to declare who the one true king of the Jews is with these words. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. And that's written by Pilate. That's a placard on a cross. On that cross is the king. That's how, that's how he wins. 
That's how he unleashes his reign. That's how he unleashes the kingdom of heaven into the tohu ve-bohu and brings about shalom. His throne is not a palace. He reigns from the cross. That's our king. You know who this king came for? Look who's in Jesus' genealogy. And what you need to know is no genealogy in that day would ever include women. Because women in that day had very little status to no status, but Jesus probably includes five women in his genealogy. Then look a little bit closer at those women. Three of those women are Gentiles, pagans, outsiders. Then you look a little bit closer. One of them is Tamar. Who's Tamar? She's the one that committed incest, practically. She had sexual relations with her father-in-law. Then you go down a little further, and there's Rahab. Who's Rahab? She's a pagan and a whore. Oh, but then you get down to David. Oh, King David. I mean, that would make anyone's resume top shelf. But then look at what it highlights. Uriah's wife. It doesn't even mention Bathsheba. I mean, this isn't to slight her, but this is to slam David. Uriah was one of David's best friends. He was one of his mighty men. David not only had an affair with one of his best friend's wife, but to cover up that affair, he had his best friend killed. I mean, this stuff is as bad as it gets. These are some of the most heinous, sinful acts in the Bible. They're all in Jesus' genealogy. I mean, what should this tell us? I'll tell you what it tells us. Churches may exclude people like this. Our culture may look down on people like this. But our King Jesus came to the world for people like this. Like me. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. He is inviting you to his family. He's inviting you to experience new genesis, new creation, jubilee, shabbat shalom. Because his grace covers all. That's why he's named Jesus. That's why the angel says name him Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sin. And see in Jesus family. Prostitutes and kings are equals. Male and female. Jew and Gentile. Moral and immoral. They are all the same. And right now you might think you're a king in your own right. Or some of you might be out there sitting thinking, nope, I'm a prostitute. If you've entrusted your life to Jesus, you can look around this family right now and you can feel no better than the worst sinner and no less than if the President of the United States were here. I love what Hebrews 2 says. He, Jesus looks at his family 
And he says, I'm not ashamed to call you brother. How do we respond to this kind of king? How? Magi show us. These men sought the king with all their heart. They traveled miles upon mile upon mile. And when they found him, they got on their knees and they bowed low and they worshiped. He's the king. And the only appropriate thing we can do in response to the king is to bow and worship him. Worship him. Seek him. The king. Let's pray. God, I just pray for my own heart. I pray for every heart here that you would open the eyes of our heart to behold him. (laughs) Because just to see him, Lord, just to behold him is to love him and to trust him and to worship him. So God, take our eyes off of lesser things and fix our eyes on Christ. And I just pray, God, that we could behold him and like the magi, seek him and worship him.